A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, my colleague, our business editor, Will Dunn, will be speaking to Duncan Weldon, the economist and writer, about how Britain has never faced decline like this before. Hi, I'm Will Dunn. I'm the business editor at The New Statesman. And today I'm joined by Duncan Weldon to talk about his latest article for us. It's about the economic situation in which the UK finds itself and how that is relatively concerning compared to other countries. I recommend you go and read it on the New Statesman website. It's a relatively short read, but it's packed with revealing information about the current state of the UK economy. And the state of decline that is has for a long time been part of the narrative of the British economy. And you have some interesting points about the history of that narrative of British decline. It is part of our national story in a way, isn't it? How far does that go back? On one grand sort of macroeconomic economic history level, the story of the British economy for the past 150, 170 odd years is a story of relative decline. And a sort of, on one level, inevitable, inevitable decline. Britain was the first country to industrialise. The Industrial Revolution started here. Britain was the first country to experience modern economic growth. So in the sort of very late 18th, early 19th centuries, Britain forged out this sort of lead over pretty much every other country on the earth. And an income per head, Britain was just the richest place on the globe. Unless you think there's something very special about these islands or something in the water here, that was never going to last forever. Once that technology, those production techniques, that method of organising your economy spread to other countries, it was a story of them catching up. North America and Europe and Japan and then more recently Eastern Europe, China. That's the story of relative decline. Britain not growing as fast as other countries. That, yeah, that's the big picture. But we shouldn't just content ourselves that this is something we always say about Britain and have done for a long time, as you say in the article. Britain now stands at a point in which our productivity growth relative to other countries is possibly as bad as it has ever been in the kind of in the modern period. Yeah, right? it's very easy to talk about that big picture of decline and then look at the numbers and what's happening right now and the projections for the next few years and shrug your shoulders and say, oh, Britain's declining again, that's what Britain does. I think that would be misleading and also dangerous. Misleading because it's really important to put in context quite how bad 
the outlook is in Britain at the moment. And right now, when you look at the consensus forecasts for economic growth, Britain is expected to have one of the deepest recessions of any advanced economy and one of the slowest recoveries. Britain is already unique amongst the G7 economies, those big advanced economies, as being the only one where income per head or GDP is still below where it was when the pandemic hit. So we've fallen behind. We're expected to fall further behind. But it's not just about a bad few years. It's about a bad decade and a half. If you look at productivity growth, the ability to get more output for any given level of inputs, whether that's labour or capital or whatever it is, it's really, in the long run, the most important driver of economic growth and of living standards. The 10 years before the financial crash in 2008, Britain had the second fastest productivity growth in the G7, behind only the United States. The 10 years afterwards, the second slowest in the G7, ahead of only Italy. Our productivity growth for the last 15 years has been abysmal. There are economic historians out there who looked back at the numbers, and obviously the further you go back with the numbers, the more imprecise they become. But they think productivity growth in the last 10, 15 years is the weakest it has been since the Industrial Revolution. You've got to go back 200 years to find the British economy performing quite this poorly over the last 10, 15 years. So I think it's misleading to say decline is just something that happens to Britain. And I think it's potentially dangerous as well because that sort of dismisses what is a really acute problem. And it's also not true to just say these are global headwinds and everybody is facing the same problems because it is declining in Britain's GDP over the coming year is much steeper than that of the EU and, and the US, isn't it? Just to ask what I think is a relatively basic question, but I hope a relevant one, could you explain to me why relative growth is important? Why does it matter if our economy is growing much more slowly than that of France or Germany? What does that mean for the money in my pocket? Yeah, so I'll step back for a second and say that there is no reason that Britain should have slower growth relative to countries like France and Germany, because productivity per worker in those countries is actually higher than it is in Britain. We're behind them in terms of the, the average French worker produces in four days what the average British worker produces in five. And because our productivity is lower, you would, to use the economist's favourite phrase, all things being equal, expect Britain to have relatively faster growth and to be catching up to that productivity frontier. But just the fact we're not is on one level quite worrying. Why it should matter to the average person on the street is this is the kind of thing which they're going to slowly notice over the coming years. And when they find themselves going on holiday, if they go to Spain for a week in the summer or, or whatever, firstly, they'll notice that the passport queues are a real issue after Brexit. But once they get over that, what they will notice is the standard of living in Britain is not as high as it is in much of Western Europe. And that gap will gradually grow over time. Is that just a keeping up with the Joneses worry that your neighbour's house is getting nicer and yours isn't? Maybe. But I think it's a, it's a thing people will feel. And I think this will slowly come to the fore in the national political debate. Why are we falling behind peer mm. countries whom we used to be very comparable to in terms of our standard of living? Does that also play into the affordability of everything in this country that isn't made in this country? Yeah, one reason why inflation has been 
a bit higher in Britain is due to last a bit longer. It's partially out of dependence on gas. It's partially these sort of new trade frictions that have been thrown up by Brexit. But yes, a country that's not performing as well as the could. Ultimately, what it means is that living standards in Britain will be lower than they otherwise would be. You know, that really should be the central thing that the economy is about, about ensuring growth in living standards is as high as it can be. I was thinking about this the other day. You look at some of the projections. So we are, we are slipping behind countries like France and Germany. We're already well behind the United States. Some of those countries in Central and Eastern Europe, the rates of growth they are experiencing compared to Britain's, you will see convergence and perhaps even taking over these countries having a higher standard of living, higher GDP bed than Britain relatively quickly, late 2020s, early 2030s, depending on which country you're looking at. It's going to be this strange moment many people are going to have when, you know, 10 or 15 years time, their child announces they're off to work as an au pair in Warsaw. And it makes sense. So for kids in school, by the time they enter the workforce, they may very well find that Britain is a kind of economy that is comparable to that of Poland or Slovakia rather than to the, to, and France and Germany will be viewed as our rich neighbours. Nothing is inevitable, but on current trends, mm. that's what you're talking about. The example I always go back to is Italy. And Italy in the early 1990s was a country with standard of living very comparable to Germany, one of the richest, you know, Germany, France, Italy, all up there together as rich countries. And what you've seen in Italy is a 25-year relative decline, falling behind those countries to the extent that Italy is now more comparable to Spain, very different place to France and Germany in terms of income per head. And, you know, that's the warning with Britain. And it's easy to talk about lost decades. I mean, we're essentially now halfway through a second lost decade. Mm. And without it ringing the sort of alarm bells, I'd have expected that to ring. Yeah. And that, as you say, when you talk about potentially a school leaver in the next decade saying, well, I'm off to work in a faster, better performing economy, that would then become a kind of self-reinforcing prospect, wouldn't it? That's the sort of trap that, that countries can get into, that if you're more skilled people are leaving, then, you know, you're, that's also a further damage to your economy. Completely. If you just look at the sort of the wage numbers in Britain for the last 15 years, the really striking thing is that sort of median earnings in real terms, counting for price changes for the person in the middle of the income distribution, are expected to be in the mid-2020s, roughly where they were in 2008. So sort of you know, 15, 17, 18 years of no real growth in real pay. That's just phenomenally unusual situation. But actually, if you add on the fact that taxes are rising on these people's incomes, you add on student loan repayments, you add on the price of housing, you add on how expensive childcare is in Britain, it's really not that hard to sort of pull together a picture of why young graduates in particular might actually decide that their prospects are better off Mm. somewhere else. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth. 
Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In terms of the extent to which these are the results of political choices, you've mentioned Brexit already. And in the piece, you give a really good description of Brexit as giving a car a slow puncture, something that that wears out value from the economy over time. But what the other political choices that have created this situation? I think of Brexit as a slow puncture. Not good for the car and the kind of thing that takes a while to really show up. But I think the important thing is Brexit is a 2016 event and this sort of slower burning economic crisis starts 2007 2008 to go back to the car analogy there's clearly something wrong with the engine throughout this and now we've got now we've got a broken engine and a busted tire not ideal you know i think if you look at sort of the model of growth the british economy had in the 1990s into the 2000s. Two decades, you know, economists sometimes called the great moderation when growth was steady and quite fast, productivity growth was good, the jobs market was doing well with employment rising, inflation was low and stable, this sort of golden age, as it were, British growth in the 90s and 2000s. I think that economic model was very badly damaged by what happened in 2007 to 2009, the banking crisis, the Mm -hmm. financial crisis, whatever we want to call it. That happened around the globe. Almost every country was affected by that crisis, but Britain as a global centre of finance to which financial services had been making a rising contribution to economic growth for a couple of decades was obviously particularly badly hit by that. That was a fundamental blow to Britain's model of economic growth. And then you get Brexit on top of that. So, you know, this sort of important motor of your growth has been damaged. And then you throw up trade barriers with your nearest, largest, richest trading partner, make importing from them a bit harder, make exporting them a bit harder. If that national business model was damaged by 2008, I worry it was killed off by 2016 and Brexit. And I mean, the political choice that really worries me is the absence of a choice. Mm. The fact that our national business model has been in two stages broken, but the attempt has been to continue on as if it hasn't, trying to make this old model work when sort of fundamental pillars of it have been knocked down. What we're seeing now is we, we had the pandemic that hit every country. We had the energy price spike associated with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's hit all the countries around Europe. But Britain is feeling these blows in a harder way recovering from them at a slower pace. And the final sort of political choice, which was an act of choice, I will add into this, was the turn to austerity in 2010. 
And I think what happened there was the economy was recovering, but that sort of slamming on of the fiscal breaks as they started cutting spending, putting up taxes, being more concerned about getting the ratio of government debt to GDP down, getting the government's deficit down than supporting the recovery. I think that slowed the recovery. I think that almost certainly added to our productivity problems. And I think now, more than a decade on, we're starting to feel the impact of some of that cancelled government investment. If you look at things like the NHS, if you look at things like the state of some of our infrastructure. The thing about cancelling capital spending, it's easy to do politically because roads don't have a vote in the way nurses do. So it's easy to do politically in the short term, but this is a time frame, 10, 15 years, mm. when you start to feel the impact of it. Yeah, and I, th- I think you're right. There's the, there has been for a long time a failure of grand sort of long-term vision that we are seeing now in things like our lack of national energy security, the ability to generate our own energy. And as you say, they're taking the biggest spender out of the economy, not entirely out of the economy, but reducing all of that government spending that could have happened. There are lots and lots of businesses relying on that. But but as you say, the, the, in your piece, the risk now is that, that there there isn't a big idea. Where are the big ideas? And yeah. Do you think that's a risk that applies across the House of Commons, basically? Do you think that there is a lack of big ideas across the political spectrum? Yeah, I think what's really striking is we start off by saying the story of Britain's relative economic decline is a long one, a very long-running one. There's a couple of sort of periods when it's really came to the attention of sort of you know public debate, the political debate, political elites, or the turn, the years around the turn of the 20th century, sort of this first moment, late Victorian into Edwardian times, when there weren't good economic statistics, but it was increasingly obvious that France had industrialised, Germany had industrialised, the United States had industrialised, British shops had foreign-made goods appearing in them in big numbers for the first time. There was worries that Britain was losing its economic lead, and this became the centre of political debate for many years and you saw some radical solutions. The Conservative Party endorsed protectionism and thought what we need is tariff barriers to keep out these foreign goods and imperial unity around the empire to build it into one big economic block and that was our vision. And on the other side, the Liberal Party came forward with what became new liberalism, this sort of Edwardian progressivism, or birth of a nascent welfare state with old age pensions and unemployment insurance and this slightly more active role for the state in the economy. This was a period of economic decline which caught political attention and saw big ideas coming out of both sides. You go to the 1970s when people were talking about Britain as the sick man of Europe. On the left, what becomes the alternative economic strategy? Again, in some ways similar to the Tory strategy of 70 years before, you have your tariff barriers, but you have much more active industrial policy, much more state investment. And on the right, you had the ideas which, when they were put into practice in the 80s, we came to call Thatcherism, tearing up of the sort of post-war growth model, changing it all. You look at the political debate today, when we're in a decline which is just empirically a much bigger deal than what was happening in the 70s or at the turn of the 20th century. And those big ideas just aren't there. The closest we've came to seeing it in practice was the rather short-lived Liz Truss. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I guess it's a case of being careful what you wish for in terms of big <laughs> ideas. We spoke last year in, in the wake of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng coming to power with some very big ideas and then being swiftly defenestrated by the bond markets. And 
on the one hand, those were, I think, a lot of people thought some pretty wild ideas in a lot of ways, perhaps with, with noble intentions, but there were these commitments that led people to conclude that government debt would be unsustainable and it was just not well thought through, not communicated properly. And the crisis that it caused was a disaster that could have got a lot worse. But on the other side, does that mean that British politicians now have to be more careful about what they say in order to avoid spooking the foreign investors who buy our debt, which is what allows us to raise the money for public spending? Yeah, I think look, what you need is you need big ideas, but you need workable big ideas rather than wild big ideas, because the lesson of that was it um, six weeks of Liz Truss and, and Quasi Quateng. I think what would be nice would be if we had sort of a vision of what the British economy, of what we wanted the British economy to look like in the early 2030s. If we said, OK, what do we think are going to be the drivers of growth? What skills and infrastructure do we need to ensure we've got those drivers in place? To have a fundamental sort of root and branch review of what the role of government is in the economy, what it can do to support businesses, where we expect the growth to come from. The economic debate in Britain is sometimes very strange. It sometimes seems that we have a political elite and a political debate which is not very happy about the things we are good at and talks more about the things we are bad at. There's lots of envy for German vocational education or German manufacturing prowess. Fine, but you are more likely to succeed if you start by looking at where is the United Kingdom already economically strong Mm -hmm. and how do we add to that rather than how do we make ourselves more like a country across the North Sea. If you were to ask foreign observers looking at the British economy, what's the British economy good at? They would say it has one of the strongest university sectors in the world, which are effectively Mm -hmm. an export industry as well. It's got huge strength in services, and it's not just financial services, it's all sorts of professional and technical services, whether that's architecture or lawyers or accountants, management consultants, even all of these different types of the service sector. It's very strong in the creative industries. Rather than trying to beat ourselves up that why is Britain not very good at producing steel, to say actually, look, Britain is this leading services provider, how can we get even better at that Mm. rather than how can we do something completely different yeah but you also have to do that at the same time as addressing the inequality income inequality within the the british economy because you can't have an economy entirely composed of lawyers and film directors no not at all not at all not at all not at all that would be a very horrible place to live i imagine but no completely in terms of where's the growth going to come from i think you step back to get techie about it you step back you look at the economy and you think you know the economy you can on one level say there are two sectors there's this high productivity, high value add sector, by definition, because it's really high productivity, it doesn't employ very many people. Mm. And then you've got the rest of the economy. Economies that do it well, I think somewhere like Japan is quite interesting on this, that it's got this incredibly high productivity manufacturing and tech and a bit of financial services sector. And that does incredibly well and helps keep the country as a whole a rich country. But They've managed to find a way that the benefits of that are shared with those not working directly in that sector. So I think you look at Britain, you say, okay, you want to support professional services broadly defined. You want to support creative industries. You want to support the universities. You want to support science and life sciences and pharmaceuticals. You want these all to be doing. You want to be leaning into things like renewable energy, where there's huge potential just geographically in Britain. Do all of that as much as you can, and that's going to be very good for the economy. But whilst you're doing that, don't just concentrate on growing the size of the economy. 
think about people working in the rest of the service sector, whether that's retail workers, people working in childcare, social care, whatever, and how can we ensure that their wages, terms and conditions are benefiting from this economic growth? Duncan Weldon, thank you so much for your time. And please do head to the New Statesman website to read Duncan's piece and our other pieces on UK politics and the economy. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with my colleague, Will Dunn, and our guest, Duncan Weldon. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.